Hello, this is Edward Linenthal, editor of the Journal of American History. During the sesquicentennial years of the Civil War, the Organization of American Historians is committed to bringing the best current thinking on this complex era to a wide audience. We aim to explore the war from its beginnings through its aftermath. As part of this goal, the OEH is pleased to offer a series of podcast conversations with distinguished historians. During 2011, we will focus on the origins of the conflict. In this first podcast, we welcome Dr. Dwight Pitt-Caithley, for many years Chief Historian of the National Park Service and now College Professor of History at New Mexico State University. Dr. Pitt-Caithley is also an OEH Distinguished Lecturer. Dwight Pitt-Caithley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Dwight, during your tenure as Chief Historian of the National Park Service, interpretation of the Civil War underwent some significant changes at a number of parks. Prior to the implementation of that, however, there was a group of superintendents that came together to talk about Civil War interpretation. As Chief Historian, you were a part of that conversation and were significantly involved. Can you tell us about your impressions of interpretation of the Civil War at sites when you first came on as chief historian? And then uh, talk to us about the changes that took place over your tenure. Uh, First, a little background. The National Park Service inherited the military parks of Civil War battlefields from the Department of War in 1933, uh, when they were created by Congress in the 1990s, the five, first five Civil War battlefields, Gettysburg and Shiloh and so forth, um, the Park Service didn't exist. And so the Department of War was charged with interpreting them. And because they were done in the 1990s, uh, there was no mention of of causes at these places because the War Department presumed that anyone who visited in the 90s knew what the causes were. And because the veterans were heavily involved in creating these battlefields. They wanted to talk more about who was where and battle lines and marking battle lines and the the spots where generals fell and that sort of thing. So in 1933, the military parks are transferred to the National Park Service, and the National Park Service adopted that same sort of approach to interpreting the battlefields. That is all about the military action on the land rather than any background information on why those men were actually fighting each other. And that philosophy continued into the 1990s. In fact, it became sort of an unwritten uh, policy of the Park Service specifically not to talk about causes. Uh, It was too controversial. Um, it might um, uh, cause problems with our constituents, uh, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, in the 1930s in Virginia, the National Park Service cut a deal with the state of Virginia and the state historian that all of its interpretive material would be uh, sent to the state historian for his review to make sure that uh, as it was said then, the, the Park Service didn't say anything obnoxious about um, the South or about the Confederacy. A, a second reviewer in that process was Douglas Southall Freeman, of course, the great uh, biographer of biographer of Lee and and promoter of the of the Lost Cause interpretation of the war. So that that philosophy continued uh, un, until the 1990s, and in the 90s we had a, a marvelous group of 
Civil War superintendents who um, were educated in a different in a different way uh, at a different time, and they decided by by 1998 that with the sesquicentennial coming up, that the Park Service needed to be a little little more forthcoming about why the why the war occurred and why the battles occurred, and so there was a, a meeting in Nashville, Tennessee that I unfortunately did not get to attend, although people from my staff did. And the superintendents talked about a number of things, another common interest encroaching urban development on Civil War battlefields and that sort of thing. But one of them was interpretation. How do we interpret the battlefield? And they determined sort of unanimously that the Park Service ought to, at every park, talk about why the war occurred. We do it at other places, and we should do it with national park, national battlefield parks as well. And they produced a booklet that talked about and, and, and said, we're going to talk about causes, and we're going to do it from the ground up. We're going to talk about, we're talk, in Georgia, we're going to talk about secession in Georgia, why the war occurred from the Georgia perspective, and go forth from there in preparation for the 150th anniversary of the war. So as you became involved with this, what did you see as the kind of razor's edge issues that people faced? And can you give listeners some examples of, of case study sites, how superintendents and others went about making changes? Uh, what were some of the reactions to those changes? Well, I think the razor's edge uh, then and now is not about who won the Battle of Gettysburg or whether Lee was the better general than Grant, although those certainly spark, uh, the second sparks a fair amount of conversation. The, the razor's edge is, is the, what caused the war, and it has always has been a flashpoint in the conversation that we as citizens have about about the Civil War. If there's any disagreement, it's it's over that because of the carefully constructed lost cause interpretation of the war that separates slavery from from the causes. And that was, of course, begun by Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens in their histories of the war in the in the late 19th century. So the flashpoint we knew from the beginning was going to to be the causes. And superintendents approach this um, differently um, as 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 they should. Uh, they live in different locales with different politics. There, we had a brief. We that is the Washington office and the superintendents had a, a very brief discussion on whether it would be easier for a standard explanation to be developed in Washington. Um, that the parks would then run with, and we realized for a range of reasons that that would not be the proper way to go, that parks needed to, to grow these from from the ground up using local examples in Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, and so forth. And for a couple of examples, Richmond, uh, Richmond Battlefield had just moved into its new headquarters uh, or visitor center, I should say, at the Tredegar Ironworks down on the canal in Richmond. And we're building new exhibits there, and the superintendent at the time wanted to uh, both treat the various battles that occurred around Richmond and the home front. What, what did it mean to the people living in Richmond during those four years that this war was circulating around them? And what she decided to do was have sort of an extensive preface to the exhibit and then an afterword to the exhibit. And she spent a lot of time, and she enlisted my office in that process of, of crafting 
two or three paragraphs on what led up to the war from Virginia's perspective. And then she circulated that with the city fathers, uh, as she defined them, and they made some edits, and we made some edits, and, and eventually it got up. Um, it's it's uh, looking back now from the vantage point of about 10 years, uh, I think both she and, and I would agree it was a little a little timid, a little tepid, but certainly was light years ahead of what had been there in the past. The largest visitor center and change in interpretation that went up was at Fort Sumter, which is the way it should be. The Park Service location in Fort Sumter, not the fort, but the place on the mainland where one would get information and get on the boat to go out to to Fort Sumter itself, which of course is an island, moved around Charleston a bit. And finally, around this time, the Park Service purchased some land near the aquarium and built a, a brand new visitor center, permanent visitor center, and devoted the interpretive exhibits there to the coming of the war, from, from the Revolutionary War through the Constitution on up and enlisted uh, local historians local uh, historians at the at the local museums there to craft the the various panels then then the park did a very interesting thing they created the exhibits but on kind of a a fiber uh, plastic material that that replicated the images that would go up and the text that would go up but it was it was sort of computer generated um, and it went up in the exact spaces where the exhibits would go. But on each one of these panels, it said, this is, this is a draft, and we want your uh, involvement in this. And, and those sort of draft exhibits stayed up for oh, perhaps six months, uh, perhaps longer, I'm not sure, but at least six months to let visitors who come in who came in, uh, look at the exhibits and and uh, comment on them. And then after the six-month period uh, occurred, then they crafted the exhibits in three dimensions and, and, and so forth and, and put it up. By all accounts, it was very successful. There have been a very few negative comments, a few, but given the fact that we're in Charleston, South Carolina, not much. And, if, and of course, it spoke a great deal about slavery and slavery being the rub uh, in the run-up to the war, the, the third example. I won't talk about Gettysburg yet because it's it was just just recently opened, um, and as as far as I'm concerned, is the is the best of those exhibits because the the people who crafted that visitor center and those exhibits had the the advantage of learning from all of the other parks that that went through this experience, um, and it's in the north, which which gives it a, a different context um, for talking about the war. But the other one was at Corinth, Mississippi. The Park Service received money to do a, a, a large visitor center, their brand new building, brand new park, to talk about the the Battle of Corinth, the Siege of Corinth, and the contraband issue, which uh, at Corinth was the first place it became quite large. What do you do with all of these um, slaves, former slaves, who cross over the lines and go to Union lines uh, by the by the thousands, what does the United States do with them? And so this park was created to, to talk about that. And uh, that park, very creatively, um, in the in the first room of that exhibit, talked again about slavery uh, being the rub. But then, because Mississippi was one of those four states that developed a declaration of secession, a very formal explanation of why 
the state seceded. Uh, the park took the, the critical portion of that and blew it up and put it on the far wall. So you learn how slavery was core to the secession movement, not from, not from the Park Service, but from the secessionists themselves. Uh, I think it was very successful in talking to the superintendent, Woody Harrell. There's been very few grumblings about that because at that point you have to argue with, with those who were seceding rather than with the National Park Service. So each, each park developed a different rhythm for putting the exhibits together. I'll, I'll flash forward to Gettysburg, which was the, uh, the most recent of the, of the parks to do something large in this way. They created a national committee, a national advisory committee made up of, of historians uh, from around the country. And they met, I was ex-officio on that because I was chief historian, they met twice a year, once in January and once in June, to go over all aspects of the interpretive program that would go in that new um, visitor center. It, it probably had the most, Gettysburg probably had the most formal way of approaching this, this interpretation being being as upfront, using the current research available on talking about the coming of the war. Thank you, Dwight. And one of the things uh, that, that I hear you saying is that each of these places grounds the story in the local and grounds the story in the primary documents of the time as as they did in Corinth so it it isn't just uh, contemporary historians talking about this but it's what people at the time were saying the war was about is that correct that's right that's right to to greater and lesser extents um some parks did it more consciously than others but certainly one of the things that that I pushed as chief historian was let's get back to the original documents uh, as much as we can, and, and the, we had those four states that developed uh, declarations of secession, and, and we should use those. South Carolina at Fort Sumter didn't use South Carolina's, uh, except as a as a reference um, uh, call, but didn't use it nearly as much as, say, the Corinth Visitor Center did. It's all based on, um, on certainly contemporary, contemporary now thinking about the war and how historians approach it and use those original documents as much as we can. And that would involve also letters and newspaper articles. Of course, of course. Now, you were the recipient uh, of <laughs> thousands of letters uh, during your tenure. I remember reading a, a, a good many of them uh, when I was doing work in the Washington office with lots of fairly passionate criticism uh, of the rally on the high ground movement, uh, political correctness and uh, revisionism run amok and so forth. Could you talk a little bit about the kinds of responses that you were getting, how you responded to them, because I know you wrote everyone back, uh, and then also, uh, I know that you spoke during your years as chief historian to many, many, many groups all around the country, if I'm remembering correctly, Civil War Roundtables, Sons of the Confederate Veteran Group. Talk about your presentations, your conversations with them, what you took to them, what you learned from them as you look back on these interesting years. We knew there was going to be some pushback. Um, it was it was not unanticipated at all because the lost cause is alive and well, maybe even more alive and well than it than it was in the 19th century, and so we 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 knew that, that the pushback was going to come. Um, it came um, 
in, in, I guess the only way it, it probably could have come when word of the, the Nashville meeting got out and snippets of the of the rally on the high ground report worked out. I, I should say that none of that was a secret meeting. Uh, the state historic preservation officer from Tennessee, and it seems to me from one other state was there. There were a number of, of Park Service people and non-Park Service people attending this critical meeting where the decision was made to start talking about the causes. Um, but it was pushed by two groups in particular, the Sons Confederate Veterans and the Civil War Roundtable group, promoted mostly by a fellow named Jerry Russell from Little Rock, who was the head of the Civil War Roundtable Associates, sort of a, um, in his mind, a spokes group. He was spokesperson for this, the various um, roundtables. And it, um, as I guess political discourse happens on any subject, they assumed the worst about what the Park Service was going to do and and spun it that way to their to their audiences. So the the, the word that, that got out to uh, to the people who wrote the letters that, that that sent them to us was that the National Park Service was abandoning all military history and going to social cultural history. Um, it was going to at every battlefield park. It was only going to talk about slavery and the role slavery played in secession. Uh, in other words, the Park Service had run amok in their spinning of this story. And not surprisingly, then, the people who received these letters and, and email from uh, the Civil War Roundtable Group and from the Sons of Confederate Veterans reacted um, um, passionately. And I had said on a couple of occasions uh, publicly to these groups, if I had received those um, those letters and didn't know what the Park Service was doing, I probably would have responded in exactly the same way. This is not the way our backstop should be spent at these places. Uh, in fact, the truth of the matter was, and this is what we went on to, to talk about, was that the, the, the emphasis on the military aspects of those, of those battlefields would not change at all. Uh, these places are different because something happened there, and what happened there was a battle with losses on both sides, and the Park Service would continue to talk about the battle and the losses as it had in the past. What would change is that there would be a preface, essentially, to the interpretation of the military side, and that would deal with why are these men out here in the first place? Why are these armies at Gettysburg or Shiloh or wherever, and backing up one step from that. So what's the war all about? What's, what's, what's causing this, this problem? But that would only be, and we were very clear about that from the beginning, uh, it would be prefatory material. It would be the introduction to the main event, the main interpretive event, and that would always be as it should be on, on the military. But that got twisted, I think, for very uh, in, in a very purposeful way by the Sons of Confederate Veterans because they didn't want, uh, as they had not in the past, wanted um, any discussion of the causes of the war because if you talk about the causes of the war, you're going to end up talking about slavery. And in their view, everyone knows that slavery didn't have anything to do with the coming of the war. It only came later with the Emancipation Proclamation. So we did get around um, 2,200, 2, cards and letters, many of them a postcard, a tear-out postcard from the Sons of Confederate Veterans in their magazine, Confederate Veteran, maybe every issue, maybe every other issue. There's a, uh, a set of tear-out postcards that you could protest uh, heritage violations, as, they, as, as the Sons of Confederates defined them, in the issue where 
the Park Service card appeared. There were two others, one to VMI, Virginia Military Institute, which had its, its band, at a, as, I, as I recall, it's at a basketball game, had played Dixie when it was under orders not to because it was, um, at that point, it was becoming inflammatory because VMI had a lot of black students and, and so forth. So they decided not to play it, and the band sort of broke the, the pledge and played it anyway and were punished in some way by the school and and so one of these other postcards was protesting their being um, brought up short because they had played Dixie. The other one, interestingly enough, was to George Bush when he was governor of the state of Texas because he had allowed a plaque in, I think, the judicial building uh, in Texas, the Supreme Court of, of Texas. It had a plaque in front that would, had been donated, as I recall, by the United Daughters of the Confederacy and had language in it that wasn't as uh, representing uh, justice as being as far blind as we would like. And some people protested it, and it was moved to a back hallway in the building. And so the third card in the Confederate veteran was to George Bush, protesting the, the moving of that plaque. So so we got the sort of standard response we understand, or, or standard complaint, the Park Service is, is being politically correct. It's going to talk about slavery, quoting from one of those cards. I also understand that the role of slavery at individual battle sites is to be emphasized. Uh, this is not the purpose of the battlefields, the cards went on to say, and, and we're protesting that. And every one of those cards and letters and, uh, of, the, of the several thousand that we got, if they, if they had a return address on it, and many did not, but as many as did, we responded. We developed a, about a two-page letter um, in response. It was a serious complaint, we felt. People who wrote those letters were taxpayers. They had a right to know what the Park Service was doing with their money. And so we developed uh, what we thought was a, a fairly thoughtful letter correcting misinterpretations about what the letter writer thought the National Park Service was doing, and then, and then talking a little bit about why it's important to talk about causality at any historic site, but particularly at a, at a battle site. It's interesting that in some of those, we would then somebody, they would respond, um, thank you for responding to my card, and we'd have a a discussion, probably half a dozen, maybe a dozen people um, responded. And, and on a personal note, the letter writer and I would, would uh, go back and forth with an interesting correspondence. As I don't know how many minds were changed, if any, but it was all very civil and in, informative. Certainly informative for my part. I have I've also said publicly that uh, that was the most exciting years of my term as chief historian. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I learned a great deal. I learned a great deal about the Civil War, and I learned a great deal about um, how to deal with people who vehemently do not agree with your particular view of the past. Thank you, Joy. And when you visited to speak with many of these groups in person, can you recollect some of the, the more interesting conversations you you had with folks? I seem to remember your telling me that one of the fears you picked up immediately was that the Park Service was going to turn the North into a kind of stick figure good guy in which uh, there was no racism anywhere and that the South was going to become the bad guy and a fear that talking about slavery at these sites was going to somehow defile the memory of, of, of ancestors who fought. Is that right? Well, that is right. That is right. Um, and we worked very hard, and, and this was after having 
many conversations with Jim McPherson and Eric Foner and Gary Gallagher, and all, th- all three of whom were also on the Gettysburg history gathering, so I would meet formally with them twice a year, but throughout the year was in correspondence with them, because at that point, uh, I did not consider myself a um, even a student of the Civil War, much less a scholar of the Civil War, and so I'd read much of the secondary works, uh, Battle Cry Freedom and so forth, but still had many, many questions, and so I would, if we got a, a letter in complaining about um, the Corwin Amendment, for example, and the writer, I remember very clearly, said, well, you clearly don't understand your history because because you don't know about the Corwin Amendment. Well, the letter writer was absolutely right. I'd never heard of the Corwin Amendment at that point, and uh, scratched around and, and learned about the Corwin Amendment and had to come to some sort of interpretation of what the significance of that was. And so we worked very hard about being as clear about the causes as we could, never glossing over, as you said, racism in the North or the position or the, or the few numbers of abolitionists in the North. Most Northerners didn't care about about slavery. And the North in, in 1861 was not on this moral crusade to rid the country of the South, and we needed to be very clear about that. Most people in 1860 in the North voted for someone other than Abraham Lincoln. So it's we, we had worked very hard in not pitting a, a good North against a bad South, which would have been sort of politically wrong, but also historically very wrong. And I remember going to the Deep Delta Civil War Symposium in Hammond, Louisiana at one point, talking about what the Park Service was doing, and Jerry Russell was there, the, the promoter of the Civil War Roundtables, and he went in the afternoon, and, and I went in the evening, and I and I worked at all of these gatherings very hard to, to stick to the evidence of the Civil War and to be very clear about what the Park Service was doing. I spent almost as much time talking about what the Park Service was not doing, because many of the fears that these people brought to these gatherings were based on misinformation that had been fed them by either the Sons of Confederate Veterans or Jerry Russell on behalf of the Civil War Roundtable. And so I would I would talk a great deal about what Park Service was was not doing. That worked out to a fair degree. What it emphasized to me, I think, is the power of primary sources. I had read Battle Cry of Freedom, and as I said to an audience in Virginia uh, this last fall, that I thought responding to these all these letters would be easy because I had read Battle Cry of Freedom and would quote Pulitzer Prize winning Jim McPherson on this or that issue. And it turns out that there were a lot of people writing these letters. He was just a Yankee historian. Uh, he really didn't understand Southern history. As, and you, the same label would be applied to Eric Foner and, and others. So then I, I, I tried shifting text. I tried this in Texas once of using then Southern-based historians like Gary Gallagher and, and William Cooper and William Davis. And uh, the response to them was that they were scalawag historians. So uh, I couldn't win by quoting historians, no matter how well-respected they were or are within the historical community. But dealing with primary sources was a different matter. And so if I were in Texas, and this, this evolved over time, it took me a while to figure out how to, how to do this dance, that if I were speaking to the Sons of Confederate Veterans in Texas, as I did my patient, I would have the Texas's Declaration of Secession in my pocket, and at some point in the conversation, and it certainly happened then, that some 
person stood up and said, well, this is all well and good, but you know, slavery wasn't really uh, a part of the cause of the Civil War, which gave me the opportunity to pull out the words of the Texas secessionists themselves and relate what they thought they were leaving in uh, the support. And of course, the issue of slavery and protecting slavery is, is throughout that, as well as the other uh, declarations of secession. And were there responses to that, or did that often sort of trump the kinds of criticisms that you were getting? Um, it was kind of a trump uh, in the personal audience in public spaces, in public places. There would be a bit of silence there because this was a bit of information that that clearly they had not confronted before, not dealt with, and they had to process that. We got a couple of letters when we would quote from the declarations of secession. A couple of letters would would say, uh, sort of try to try to limit it by saying, well, that's just one one point of view, not the larger point of view. So there's a little bit of pushback on that. But it's it's really difficult. And and the more I've studied this, which I, since I retired in 2005, I've been doing. It's really hard to refute the words of the secessionists themselves. Your experience in this uh, dynamic period of interpretive change as chief historian has led you intellectually as well to a a fascination with these primary sources and also to a a book project that's grown out of this. Can you uh, tell listeners a bit about what you're doing? I'd love to. When I retired, I had read a lot of secondary material on the coming of the war, had a pretty good handle on it, had had these conversations with with historians around the country on it. But I hadn't satisfied myself about exactly how slavery factored in in the causes of the war. And the year after I was retired, I was teaching a short course at Middle Tennessee State University, which has a wonderful library on the Civil War. And I and I was reading uh, some primary sources there, uh, particularly the Washington Peace Convention, which was a gathering called by Virginia, met in February of 1861 for three weeks in Washington D.C. to discuss solutions to the problem. And I was fascinated by by the, the language of these delegates to this convention, 21 states. Met. And sort of from that then evolved a, a book project, as you say, that looked at each state individually, 11 states called secession conventions. Uh, very purposely, there were, there were elections, and you could vote for the, the union delegate or the secession delegate. Those delegates then met either for short periods or for longer periods in these 11 states. Each state kept a record of, of their discussions, their debates, their decisions. And every state but Texas published those immediately, either in 1861 or 1862, uh, which told me that these states wanted us in the future to know exactly why they had seceded. So I read all 11 of those um, published uh, journals of the secession conventions. I read the uh, Congressional Globe, which is the record of Congress, over secession winter, the second session of the 36th Congress that met from from uh, December of 1860 through uh, March, uh, or well into March of 1861. about 2,000 pages there. Missouri called a secession convention, but of course voted then not to secede. So the other state that seceded was Tennessee, which decided not to call a convention, but to handle 
the deliberation discussion of secession in um, in its general assembly. So and that's published, but there aren't many volumes uh, of circulating. So I had to go to Nashville and dig through the House and Senate records for Tennessee. All told, it's about 8,000 pages of primary source material from the secessionists themselves discussing what what secession was all about, why they felt the need to the need to secede. And that, I, I'm not aware that anyone has done that in the past. People have used snippets from the, their state's journal as they were developing the secession of, of Mississippi, let's say, or of Texas. But nobody had crossed the border, looked at all 11 of those plus, plus Tennessee. In that, what started coming into focus was the fact that this was very much, and it was very much perceived by them at constitutional crisis. Uh, if Republicans could win the White House, something was on, on an anti-slavery platform and something was obviously very wrong with the Constitution and its protection of property rights. So through the course of secession winter, over these four or five, I kept finding proposals to amend the United States Constitution to fix the problem. And all told, there are 66 of these individual proposals to amend the Constitution. The, the most famous one, the best known then and now, is, is John J. Critton, senator from Kentucky. His uh, five or six, five amendments and then a, a protection clause making the sixth article. And there are, by and large, 90% of these proposed amendments were designed to protect the institution of slavery. Uh, it's as clear uh, evidence as you can find from their words, from the secessionist words and, and some northerners as well, uh, what the issue was. And it was about protecting property rights. And this had become uh, clearer out of the Dred Scott case, where Roger B. Taney had said uh, property and slaves is expressly affirmed in the United States Constitution. The Southern Democrats in particular jumped on this and said uh, the Republicans are not abiding by the Constitution, but we can fix it. We can fix it by amending the Constitution. And these, all these proposals, of course, would have been the first 13th Amendment. So the, the, my work over the last four years has been to, uh, to go through those secession conventions and the, and the deliberations in Congress and the Washington Peace Convention and figure out what the debate was all about, but then specifically to analyze, to list and analyze the, these proposals to amend the Constitution as, as the leading edge of the secessionists' argument. And so that's how I, I've spent my last uh, four years. That's fascinating. Do you have a tentative title for the book yet, Dwight? I do. It's uh, Little Paper Amendments, Slavery in the Constitution on the Eve of the Civil War. Hmm, wonderful. Well, that pulls up through publication, we don't know, but uh, that's the that's the title right now. Thank you. Well, let me ask you a, a final question. I know that we're uh, historians and not visionaries, but you have a, a unique perspective uh, from which to view the doings of these next few years during the Civil War sesquicentennial. What, what's your thought about where we'll be at the end of that in our sort of thick understanding of the causes of the war, the war itself, the consequences and legacies of the war. Where would you like us to be and what do you expect will happen over these years? The standard 
a poor standard, but the standard against which the sesquicentennial is being measured, of course, is the centennial during the 1960s, uh, which was not a very thoughtful remembering of the war at all. There were a lot of battle reenactments. Robert Cook has called that period troubled commemoration. That is the the way this nation looked at the at the centennial of the war. I think a lot of us, and certainly including myself, hope that four years from now we will have had a much more thoughtful conversation about the causes of the war and its legacies than we did then. That will uh, there'll be less passion, uh, less bombast. And people, both North and South, will have rolled up their sleeves and thought critically about this war as a as a watershed in American history. Uh, certainly changed the the look of American democracy with those three constitutional amendments that came out of it. Three constitutional amendments that would have have been a long time coming, if at all, had there not been a war. I think one of the interesting. Um, intriguing things with what hap- what would have happened to the country if the South had not bolted in 1860 and 1861. So, um, uh, but it's only a hope. Uh, there's the, the the legacy of the lost cause is still there. We there are still Southern balls to celebrate the Confederacy, as opposed to remembering the Confederacy and its role in in this this war. So I, I'm hoping that. That, that people will sort of be less passionate about particular sides, uh, taking a side of the North was right or the South was right or whatever, and, and really think about how the war came about. And that leads us, I think, very obviously then to the primary evidence of it. So if one is in Mississippi, I hope they would read at least Mississippi's Declaration of Secession and and possibly the whole convention proceedings, or even Percy Lee Rainwater's 1937, I think, history of the convention, uh, which is excellent, an, an oddity uh, coming out of the uh, the 1930s, still in Jim Crow South, a brilliant explanation of what Mississippi uh, Secession Convention was doing. So I'm hoping we we read more of the primary source evidence and then base our conversations on that rather than the knee-jerk reaction of it couldn't be about slavery because most Southerners didn't own slaves, or of course it was about slavery because Lincoln was an abolitionist and he abolished slavery just as soon as he could. And those are sort of, as Ayers likes to say, kind of bumper sticker history, which never works to anyone's satisfaction. Dwight, thank you so much for doing this podcast with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Ed.